The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Borey, Part 4, The 1900s, Precursors of Psychoanalysis. It often surprises students of psychology that psychiatry, meaning the doctoring of the mind, was not invented by Sigmund Freud. Freud developed a very particular and significant brand of psychiatry known as psychoanalysis. Psychiatrists existed before Sigmund Freud, and for the most part, psychiatrists today are not Freudian. The term psychiatry was coined by the German physician Johann Riehl in 1808, and that term psychiatry would slowly replace the older term alienist. If you would like to learn more about the treatment of mental illness in the late 1800s, let me recommend you to an excellent book titled The Alienist, written by Caleb Carr. A note at the beginning of this novel explains the title. It says, quote, Prior to the 20th century, persons suffering from mental illness were thought to be alienated, not only from the rest of society, but also from their own true natures. Those experts who studied mental pathologies were known as alienists, end quote. Now, the new respect that was signaled by the change to the term psychiatry was based on some significant improvements in the care of the mentally ill beginning in the second half of the 1700s. There are three people to whom I would like to pay my respects as important precursors of psychoanalysis. Franz Anton Mesmer, who discovered hypnotism. Philippe Pignel, who changed the way that we thought of and treated the mentally ill. And Jean-Martin Charcot, who is often considered the father of neurology. Mesmer. Franz Anton Mesmer was born May 23, 1734, in Isnang, Germany, near Lake Constance. He received his MD from the University of Vienna in 1766. His dissertation concerned the idea that the planets influenced the health of those of us here on Earth. He suggested that the gravitational forces of those planets could change the distribution of our animal spirits. He later changed his theory to emphasize magnetism rather than gravity, hence the term animal magnetism. Now, one of my favorite jokes about animal magnetism involves going camping and waking up with a squirrel stuck to the side of your head. But, of course, that was not what Mesmer meant by the term animal magnetism. The term would eventually become known as mesmerism, and today we would recognize it as hypnosis. Now, Mesmer was, in fact, able to put people into trance states, even into convulsions, by waving magnetized bars over them. 
These dramatic performances were quite popular for a while, although Mesmer believed that anyone could achieve the same results. In point of fact, some of his patients did in fact get relief from their symptoms, a point that would later be investigated by others. Now, when Mesmer was accused of fraud by other physicians in Vienna, he went to Paris. In 1784, the King of France, Louis XVI, appointed a commission, including Benjamin Franklin, to look into Mesmer and his practices. The commission concluded that Mesmer's results were due to nothing more than suggestion. Despite condemnation by many of the educated elite, Mesmerism became a popular fad in the salons of Europe. In order to serve the many poor people who came to him for help, Mesmer designed a sort of bathtub in which they would sit while holding the magnetic rods themselves. He eventually created organizations to train other mesmerists. Mesmer died March 5, 1815, in Meersburg, also near Lake Constance, Germany. An English physician, James Braid, 1795 to 1860, a much more careful researcher of Mesmer's phenomenon, termed it hypnotism. Dissociated from Mesmer, hypnotism would go to have a long, if still controversial, life into the 20th century. Peniel. Philippe Pignel was born April 20, 1745, in the small town of Saint-André. His father was both a barber and a surgeon, a very common combination in those days, as both vocations required a steady hand with the razor. In fact, the modern barber pole, with its twist of red and white, harkens back to this blending of the professions of barbering and surgery. The barber pole is associated with bloodletting and was historically a representation of the bloody bandages that were wrapped around a pole. During medieval times, barbers performed surgery on their customers as well as doing tooth extractions. The original barber pole had a brass wash basin at the top, which represented the vessel in which leeches were kept. And on the bottom, another basin representing a basin that received blood. The pole itself represented the staff that the patient gripped during the procedure to encourage blood flow. So Philippe Pignel came from a long line of physicians on both his father's and his mother's side. Philippe Pignel began his studies with a greater interest in literature, especially the work of Jean-Jacques Rousseau, than he ever had in medicine. But after a few years of studying theology... He began the study of medicine, and he received his M.D. from the University of Toulouse in 1773. Pignel moved to Montpellier in 1774, where he tutored wealthy students in anatomy and mathematics. He was admitted into the Montpellier Society Royale de Sciences after presenting two papers on the use of mathematics in anatomical studies. He moved to Paris in 1778, where he came into contact with a number of the renowned scientists and philosophers of the day, including Benjamin Franklin. 
In addition, Peniel became familiar with the radical new ideas of John Locke and the French sensationalists. Although Peniel could not practice in Paris, he became a well-respected medical writer, particularly known for his careful and exhaustive case studies. A turning point in Peniel's life came in 1785, when a friend of his developed a mental illness that eventually ended in that friend's death. Peniel became devoted to the study of mental illness and became the head of the Paris Asylum for Insane Men at Bessatra in 1792. In that year, he also married Jean Vincent, with whom he had three sons. It was at the Bessatra Asylum that Peniel made his place in history. Prior to his coming to the Bessatra, the men were kept in chains, treated abominably, and even put on daily display to the public as curiosities. Now, these were in the days before modern television. And so when people wanted some entertainment, they might go slumming. They would go to the asylum and for a small price could pay to see the insane chained to the walls or performing various antics. Of course, today with the invention of television, especially reality television, well, we still find people being entertained by the mental illness of others. But back to our story. In 1793, Pinel instituted a new program of human care, which he referred to as moral therapy. The men were given clean, comfortable accommodations and were instructed in simple but productive work. In 1795, Pinel was appointed the head physician at the world-famous hospital at Salpetra. Here, too, he provided his enlightened treatment conditions to the mentally ill. In that same year, he was made professor of medical pathology at Paris. In 1801, Philippe Pignel introduced to the world the first textbook on moral therapy. For all of his work as a reformer, improving the conditions in which the mentally ill were treated, Philippe Pignel became beloved by many of the patients at the asylum. In fact, some of them had improved sufficiently that they were able to leave the asylum and return to polite society. Now, this, of course, led to a backlash. The story is told of a man who had been chained in the asylum for over 20 years. And apparently, he was a huge mountain of a man, a former soldier who had been locked up in the asylum as the result of some violent act that he had committed years, years earlier. So Pinel unchained this man, and in his autobiography, Pinel described leading this man, named Charles Chavanier, into the courtyard where Chavanier saw sunlight for the first time in 20 years. It was reforms like this that made Pinel so popular. And when the asylum was beset by French citizens, you can imagine them carrying pitchforks and lighted torches, they demanded that Pinel be brought out. They were fearful that he was, quote, releasing devils into the streets of Paris. Well, 
This young man, Charles Chavanier, now no longer quite so young, was still a mountain of a man. And he picked up Philippe Pignel and carried him away to safety. Pignel is also remembered for dismissing the demonic possession theory of mental illness once and for all, and for eliminating treatments such as bloodletting from his hospital. He also introduced other novelties to his hospital, such as vaccinations and the use of the stethoscope. Pignel was a physician to Napoleon, and was made a knight of the Legion of Honor in 1804. When Pignel died in Paris on October 25, 1826, his funeral was a state occasion and was attended by hundreds of former Basatra inmates. Pignel's innovations were soon imitated in other countries by such notables as William Tuke in England, Vincenzo Cerugi in Florence, Italy, and Dorothea Dix in the United States. Charcot. Jean-Martin Charcot was born in Paris on November 29, 1825. He received his medical degree at the University of Paris in 1853. And in 1860, he became a professor at his alma mater. Two years later, Charcot began to work at the Salpetra Hospital as well. In 1882, he opened a neurological clinic at the Salpetra Hospital. It, and he, became known throughout Europe, and students from everywhere came to study this new field. Among them were Alfred Binet and a young man named Sigmund Freud. Charcot is well known in medical circles for his studies of the neurology of motor disorders, the resulting diseases, aneurysms, and the localization of brain function. He is considered the father of modern neurology, as well as the first person who diagnosed multiple sclerosis. In psychology, Charcot is best known for his use of hypnosis to successfully treat women suffering from the psychological disorder then known as hysteria. Now called conversion disorder, hysteria involved a loss of some psychological function, such as vision, speech, tactile sensations, movement, or so forth. But that loss was not based in actual neurological damage. Charcot believed that hysteria was due to a congenitally weak nervous system, combined with the effects of some traumatic experience. Hypnotizing these patients brought on a similar state to hysteria itself. Charcot found that, in some cases, the symptoms would actually lessen after hypnosis. Although he was only interested in studying hysteria, not curing it. Others would later use hypnosis as part of curing the problem. Charcot died in Morvan, France, on August 16, 1893.
Before we turn to the really big names, let's take a peek at the concept of the unconscious that is so strongly associated with psychoanalysis. Most historians agree that the first mention of such a concept was Leibniz's discussion of petite perceptions, or little perceptions. By little perceptions, Leibniz meant certain very low-level stimuli that could enter the mind without the person's awareness, what we might today call subliminal messages. Today, after much study on subliminal messages, the reality of such things is very much in doubt. Johann Friedrich Herbart, 1776-1841, was the author of a textbook on psychology that was published in 1816. But, following Kant, he did not believe psychology could ever be a science. He took the concepts of the associationists and blended them with the dynamics of Leibniz's monads. Ideas had an energy of their own and could actually force themselves on the person's conscious mind by exceeding a certain threshold. When ideas were incompatible, one or the other would be repressed, Herbart said, meaning one of them would be forced below the threshold into the unconscious. This idea should remind you of Sigmund Freud's ideas, except Johann Herbart had them nearly one century earlier. Schopenhauer is often seen as the originator of the unconscious, and he spoke at great lengths about the instincts and the irrational nature of man, and freely made use of words like repression, resistance, and sublimation. Friedrich Nietzsche also spoke of the unconscious. One of his most famous statements is, quote, My memory says I did it. My pride says I could not have done that. In the end, my memory yields. End quote. One more pre-Freudian who should be mentioned is Carl Edward von Hartmann, 1842-1906. Von Hartmann blended the ideas of Schopenhauer with Jewish mysticism, or the Kabbalah. And he wrote Philosophy of the Unconscious in 1869, a book published just in time to influence a young neurologist named Sigmund Freud. Now, you should understand that there are many theorists with little or no use for the concept of the unconscious. Bertano, the forefather of phenomenology and existentialism, did not believe in the unconscious. Neither did William James. Neither did the Gestalt psychologists. Memories, for example, can be understood as stored in some physical state, perhaps as neurological traces in the brain. When activated, we remember, but they are not in the mind, the conscious or the unconscious, until those traces are activated. In addition to the concept of the unconscious, another early landmark of psychiatry was the introduction of careful diagnosis of mental illness, beginning with Emil Crapin's work, 
Crapin's years are 1856 to 1926. The first differentiated classification was of what Crapin labeled dementia praecox, which meant the insanity of adolescence. Crapin also invented the terms neurosis and psychosis, and named Alzheimer's disease after Aloysius Alzheimer, who was the first doctor to describe it. I should also mention Eugene Bleuler, who coined the term schizophrenia to replace dementia praecox in 1911. And now, on to Sigmund Freud. Freud's story, like most people's stories, begins with others. In his case, those others were his mentor and friend, Dr. Joseph Brewer, and Brewer's patient called Anna O. Anna O. was Joseph Brewer's patient from 1880 through 1882. 21 years old, Anna spent most of her time nursing her ailing father. She developed a bad cough that appeared to have no physical basis. She developed some speech difficulties and then became mute and then began speaking only in English rather than her usual German. When Anna O's father died, she began to refuse food and developed an unusual set of problems. She lost feeling in her hands and feet, developed some paralysis, and began to have involuntary spasms. She also had visual hallucinations and tunnel vision. But when specialists were consulted, no physical causes for these problems could be found. And, as if all of this weren't enough, she had fairy tale fantasies, dramatic mood swings, and made several suicide attempts. Brewer's diagnosis was that Anna was suffering from what was then called hysteria, now called conversion disorder, which meant that she had symptoms that appeared to be physical, but were not. In the evenings, Anna would sink into states of what Brewer called spontaneous hypnosis, or what Anna herself called clouds. Brewer found that during these trance-like states, Anna could explain her daytime fantasies and other experiences, and as a result, she felt better afterwards. Anna called these episodes chimney sweeping and, more famously, the talking cure. Sometimes, during her chimney sweeping, some emotional event was recalled that gave meaning to some particular symptom. The first example came soon after she had refused to drink for a while. She recalled seeing a woman drink from a glass that a dog had just drunk from. While recalling this, Anna experienced strong feelings of disgust and then had a drink of water. In other words, her symptom, the avoidance of water, disappeared as soon as she remembered its root event and experienced the strong emotion that would be appropriate to that event. 
Brewer called this catharsis, from the Greek word meaning cleansing. It was 11 years later that Brewer and his assistant, Sigmund Freud, wrote a book on hysteria. In it, they explained their theory. Every hysteria is the result of a traumatic experience, one that cannot be integrated into the person's understanding of the world. The emotions appropriate to the trauma are not expressed in any direct fashion, but do not simply evaporate. They express themselves in behaviors that in a weak, vague way offer a response to the trauma. These symptoms are, in other words, meaningful. When the client can be made aware of the meaning of his or her symptoms, through hypnosis, for example, then the unexpressed emotions are released and so no longer need to express themselves as symptoms. It would be analogous to lancing a boil or draining an infection. The first step in healing is to open up that wound, clean out the infected material, and then the healing can begin. In this way, Anna got rid of one symptom after another. But it must be noted that she needed Brewer to do this. Whenever she was in one of her hypnotic states, she had to feel his hands to make sure it was him before talking. And, sadly, new problems began to arise even as old problems were being addressed. According to Freud, Brewer recognized that Anna had fallen in love with him and that he was falling in love with her. Plus, Anna began telling everyone that she was pregnant with Brewer's child. This was not true, but you might say that she wanted it so badly that her mind told her body that it was true, and she developed an hysterical pregnancy. Now, this did not sit well with Brewer, a married man in the Victorian era, but even less well with his wife. Frau Brewer was probably already on edge from seeing her husband spend almost every evening on their back porch talking to this rather attractive young woman. As the result of the stories being circulated of this, what turned out to be false pregnancy, Brewer ended sessions with Anna altogether. And after that, lost interest in the study of hysteria. Now, you should understand that recent research suggests that many of these events, including the hysterical pregnancy and Brewer's quick retreat, could possibly be Freud's elaborations on reality. It was Freud who would later add what Brewer did not acknowledge publicly that secret sexual desires lay at the bottom of all of these hysterical neuroses. Now, to finish her story, Anna O. spent time in a sanatorium. It was during her time in this asylum that Anna began to do a form of self-therapy. It's important to remember that although she is most famously associated with Joseph Brewer, it was not, in fact, Brewer who cured her. Anna later reported that she traced many of her symptoms back to the death of her father. 
Having worked through and grieved this loss, she eventually left the asylum, and she later became a well-respected and active figure, in fact, the first social worker in Germany. And she did all of this under her true name, Bertha Pappenheim. Before I conclude, let me tell you briefly about the naming conventions that Freud and Brewer used. This patient's name was Bertha Pappenheim, beginning with a B and a P. The naming conventions involve moving back one letter, so Bertha beginning with a B, the previous letter is an A. Make up a name that begins with A, and the last name is only a letter. It's the letter previous to the letter beginning her last name. So the letter before P would be O. The letters A and O formed the beginning of the name Anna O. So now you can participate in the history of psychology. Take your own name, come up with the letters just prior to your first and last initials, and then make up a name that you think that Freud might have called you had you been a patient. Bertha Pappenheim died in 1936. She will be remembered not only for her own accomplishments, but as the inspiration for the most influential personality theory that we have ever had. Thank you.